Hi everyone, I'm Matt Arts. Welcome to a mini-series in partnership with the Royal Anthropological Institute of Great Britain in Ireland. This mini-series was created in anticipation of the upcoming Anthropology, AI, and the Future of Human Society virtual conference, which is being held from June 6th through the 10th of this year, 2022. So sit back, enjoy, and let's talk about the future. Hi everyone, this is Matt Arts. Um, I'm here today with Ezri Karlbach, who is an associate partner of GW and Co. and was a key force in helping to bring this all together, roundtable coordinator for the conference, and we'll be hosting a roundtable on Imagine Futures. So Ezri, thanks for jumping on. Could you start by maybe just telling us a little bit about you know your interest in futures and, and how you came to, to, to study this? Thanks, Matt, and thanks for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to uh, chat with you. The origin story, if you like, um, dates back to 1969. And obviously there was a very momentous event in the summer of that year when Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon um, and uh, created a, a, a really a transformative experience, partly through the nature of what he did and partly through the fact that it was televised live. And as a small child, I was seven at the time, um, I was allowed to stay up unbelievably late because this was such a big deal and watch the moon landing on my parents' tiny black and white TV set. Um, And later the same year in the autumn, a TV show premiered in the UK called Star Trek. And my parents somehow associated it with the moon landing and again allowed me to watch it. And I was completely hooked. So it, the origin story is that, you know, we, man, humanity, if you like, walked on the moon. Uh, and then I saw Star Trek. And I realized that it was possible not only to think about the future um, in such an incredibly detailed way, but that as my father, who was an odd mixture of Orthodox rabbi and Marxist sociologist, uh, liked to point out, the technology was obviously significant, having a walk drive and being able to beam people up and so on. But what really counted were the human relations. Um, And it made a big impression on him. He'd been a refugee uh, from Nazi Germany. And so a TV show set in the future that featured this multiracial kind of integrated cast with, you know, um, uh, with all the ramifications that that had at the time was, was very significant. So it made a huge, huge impression on me. I became a science fiction fan and a bit of a Star Trek nerd. um, And I explored all the sort of different avenues from so-called hard sci-fi, reading Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke and all the people who really focused on the science aspect. um, And then had my mind completely blown by the so-called new wave, people like Michael Moorcock and J.G. Ballard, Um, people who were more interested, as Ballard put it, in inner space than outer space. Um, And so that led into the whole concept of speculative fiction, broadening out this way of thinking about people, their relationships, the way they organise themselves, and crucially, how technology interacts with all of that. It became, you know, it was my living and breathing uh, passion for, for many, many years. Um, and it sort of ebbed and flowed a bit, but resurfaced in my university days. I did a dissertation 
on um, what I called images of the created self. Um, this was in the 1980s. There was a lot of interest in AI at that point. It was in one of the peaks before there was a trough, and now we've got a bit of a peak again. Um, and the concept that we could somehow create the sort of realistic artificial life, the android from Star Trek series, next generation, that's data, that kind of thing. Um, and what, what would the impact of that be? And then, of course, um, through the fact that this was at university, I became aware of the feminist critiques, some of the other critiques of this very kind of Western white male uh, interpretation of the future and of how if we had androids, they would all be white males with American accents, you know. Um, and uh, Donna Haraway's work started to influence me and um, Marge Piercy and, and various other fantastic people. Um, and so I got remained very interested in, in all of that. Through my postgraduate work, I, I became a big fan of Marshall McLuhan, not a bit of a what in Britain we call a Marmite character. You know, Marmite is this spread that you either love it or you hate it. McLuhan was a bit of a Marmite character, um, but I really loved his work. I, I really liked the way that he used, uh, you know, Elizabethan rhetoric basically to interrogate 20, 20th century media. Um, but then I started to discover this whole circle around McLuhan or involving McLuhan with uh, Buckminster Fuller and John McHale. So there was a big design element coming into this. Um, obviously, the Tofflers, Alvin and Heidi Toffler, and, and, you know, Future Shock, which they published in 1970, sold three million copies uh, and was one of the kind of key tomes in thinking about the future in a, in a more systematic way. Um, but also Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson and people like that. So there was an anthropological aspect to this milieu right from the start. Um, so it's gradually been building and building and building this this interest in those, essentially those three areas, speculative fiction, design, and anthropology. Um, and in 2018, the European Association of Social Anthropologists um, have a group called Why the World Needs Anthropologists, or WWNA for short. And they had an event in Lisbon, Portugal, which was entitled Designing the Future. Now, before I go any further, I really should explain that I'm not an academic anthropologist. I read humanities, which included some anthropology, but it's not really my core academic discipline. Um, I am, uh, however, what uh, the anthropologist Raymond Apthorpe beautifully described as anthropologically inclined. So that sort of explains that. Um, but I decided to participate in this Designing the Future event in Lisbon. And when I saw they were having an open session, call it Pecha Kucha, where you're allowed to present a certain number of slides in a certain amount of time, I thought, why not? I've chucked my hat in the ring. Um, and I did a presentation entitled The Future is Dead, Long Live the Future, on the basis that um, there was this whole period where, you know, it's really in the 1970s, there was a sort of coalescing of design, anthropology and science fiction thinking around the future. Um, and it just kind of fizzled out. Margaret Mead wrote what was called later anticipatory anthropology. Um, and there was a little bit of interest in that. But then there wasn't, wasn't a systematic attempt for anthropology in particular, but in many other areas to explore this concept of the future or a concept or any concept of the future. Um, so that led me to an event at the Royal Anthropological Institute, 
um, where I got chatting to a number of people and the idea for the conference emerged from those conversations. Sorry, that was a bit of a ramble, but you know, those, those are the kind of things that, that have informed and influenced the development of this particular conference. So I'd like to come back to the conference in just a second, but you know, given your long steeped history in this, how does it impact your work? Could you just share with like, you know, for anybody who's listening, that's still maybe not sure what this looks like in practice, you know, what, what how does it, you know, how, how does it really show itself on a daily basis? Okay. There, there are two things. Firstly, there is a, a more pragmatic element, um, which is the development of a number of well-known and, and some less well-known methodologies that help organizations, whether they're governments or businesses, whatever, to think strategically about the future. Um, and, you know, there have been um, scenario planning and foresight exercises of various types, but a lot of them have their roots in that whole slew of, of intellectual and artistic activity. Um, you know, the, it's nothing new to, to think about the future. People used to talk about going to the Oracle at Delphi and saying, oh, what's going to happen? You know, and, and the Oracle would answer with some very cryptic comment and you'd have to go figure it out. Uh, and things haven't really changed that much. Um, as the great uh, Swedish physicist Niels Bohr said, prediction is very hard, especially of the future. Um, and so prediction is, is not really what it's about. It's about helping people to think strategically. Actually, design plays a very big part in this, using the concepts from design as a way of uh, framing. Because at the end of the day, and uh, you know, uh, Herbert Simon and various other people have pointed this out, any act that intentionally affects the world is design, is an act of design. Um, so if you're trying to do anything to make more money, improve your healthcare system, whatever it is, you know, you are you are involved in an exercise of design and thinking about the future in a systematic way can be valuable. So there's that sort of pragmatic, that means running workshops and um, using different um, uh, approaches to get people thinking differently about, and, and crucially about the concept that there is never one fixed future. And that's my personal view. And I think from an organizational perspective, you have to take that view. You know, in the spiritual, mystical realm, there may be other, there may be other views. But um, I think it's important that human agency remains absolutely central to our view of the future. Because, you know, I, I firmly believe we can change it and we can make it better. The other side of it is the science fiction bit, if you like. And I have to say, for a long time, I was in the closet, you know, because it was not deemed to be mainstream or respectable until actually pretty recently. Um, even though um, the French philosopher um, Baudrillard wrote in the early 1980s, there's, he said there's no point in writing science fiction anymore because we're living it. And that idea tended to grow, I think, through the um, end of the 20th century into the 21st century. Uh, and you started to see it written everywhere in TV advertising, in uh, you know, all kinds of cultural uh, settings. You would see things like the future is here. You know, uh, science fiction writer William Gibson is quoted as saying uh, the future is already here. It's just not very evenly distributed. Um, so this notion that the future has already arrived, um, that 
both was driven by the increasing popularity of, of science fiction and in turn has made science fictional, not a phrase I really like, but science fictional attitudes and ideas more acceptable. Um, so I was able to come out of the closet and say, hey, I'm, <laughs> I've been a science fiction fan more or less my whole life. Um, and that has been very interesting because I've been working recently with some pretty mainstream corporate clients and basically telling them they need to read more science fiction. Um, and the response has been overwhelmingly positive. So those are the two two ways that it, it I, I work with it on a day-to-day -day basis, yeah. Very good. And it's encouraging to hear that they are receptive to reading uh, in that space. Why do you... Why do you think that has changed just out of curiosity? I mean, obviously we're here, we have this conference coming up. It's you know increasingly in the literature of academia. You're now saying that you know business is inclined to actually take your advice. What do you see changing in the broader market that is is helping to help people realize that this is a method for you know for understanding possibilities in the future? I think it's down to the three major um areas of technological development right now obviously artificial intelligence is one of them and although it hasn't become you know androids walking around the street in the way that some envisaged it is now ubiquitous it's it's in the computers we're using to talk to each other it's in the recommendations that we get when we buy stuff online it's in the traffic control systems it's in a lot of healthcare. it's in the weapons that unfortunately are being hurled at each other by the russians and ukrainians so we know that ai has entered everyday life um, but we don't really know what that means or what what the the um effect will be on very significant aspects of human activity the second main trend is biotech and we are now uh, to coin a phrase or to borrow a phrase coined by um, jane metcalf who set up neo.life which is a sort of activist hub for biologists and technologists and designers um, she said we're in the middle of a neo-biological revolution um, and it, it's evident in things like CRISPR, the gene editing technology, um, but there are many other areas. And one, it, this, this is an excuse for me to use one of my favorite phrases at the moment, ex utero embryogenesis, which is um, the production of live birth without a natural mother or father. Uh, and scientists have completed ex utero embryogenesis with mice. So give it, what, 10, 15 years, they'll be doing it with humans. And that links me to, I, I love this because it sounds like the plot from a ridiculous science fiction movie, but it's actually true, to the third area, which is space exploration. And again, there's been a, a big resurgence, partly driven by, you know, um, egotistical billionaires. It's true, but nevertheless, that's how breakthroughs often occur. You know, humans will return to the moon soon and I firmly believe that we will go to Mars not long after that. So if you look at those three trends broadly, artificial intelligence, biotech and space travel, space exploration, where do you go if you want to think through the potential consequences of those things? Science fiction. You go and read Kim Stanley Robinson or um, N.K. Jemison or, you know, um, 
wonderful British science fiction writer called Taddy Thompson. Uh, you know, there are just so many fantastic science fiction writers. And the great thing today is that they do come from a much more diverse set of backgrounds than uh, when Kingsley Amis, in his critique of science fiction in the 60s, said it's largely written by white American men for white British boys to read. Um, and that was probably true in 1963 or whenever he wrote it. But it's very, very different now. Um, and And that's encouraging. Um, yeah, so those are the three trends. They're changing everything in the business world. And therefore, uh, it's much that there's an open door now to say, well, you know, maybe there's something to be gained from an episode of Star Trek after all. Now, um, so, okay. Yeah. Go on. Well, I was going to say, so you kind of gave us the, the, you know, the foundation there of what's happening really in the business environment. And you told us a little bit about how the conference has come to be. Uh, I guess as one of the individuals helping to spearhead this, what are you hoping that this conference achieves? I think the main thing is to um, try and bring together all the disparate threads. That's why this has, this conference has, you know, a strongly interdisciplinary flavor, Um, but also to try and prioritize this specific contribution that anthropology can make. Um, which I think is is significant, and it, it's it needs to be more systematic. Um, futures studies, futures research is a phrase that actually dates to the nineteen sixties, um, but it's never been more urgent than it is now. We need that kind of thinking to deal with things like the climate crisis, to deal with the apparently endless human inclination for traumas like war to deal with systemic racism and, and inequity. You know, we need to, to take a more systematic approach to thinking about the future and drawing on um, all the resources that we have, which means fiction as well as um, fact, which means speculation as well as, you know, data and analysis. Um, and that's what this conference, I think, uh, represents a significant step towards. And so on the anthropological front, and appreciating that you come from a different academic background, uh, your, your panel, um, you know, you, you had in the, the long abstract, the line that, you're, you know, you want to see the role anthropology plays uh, both in the critical analysis of imagined futures and in contributing to them. So in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of the critical analysis, what are you thinking in that space? Well, there are two, you know, the two very closely related things. There's anthropology of the future and anthropology in the future. So, you know, the latter is thinking about what will the role of anthropologists be like if humanity becomes an interplanetary species? It's a very real prospect. Um, And there are questions, I think, for anthropology as as a discipline, for its methodologies in particular, if you think about, okay, you're going to do ethnography on Mars, how's that going to work? So that anthropology in the future, um, I think, needs needs some critical thinking, definitely. But at the moment, there is some really interesting work being done on anthropology of the future, which is looking at the different ways that we that we sort of encounter the future, if you like, now. Um, and uh, last year, I had the great honour of hosting... Um, 
a, a webinar for the RAI. Um, and one of the guests was Rebecca Bryant, who co-wrote a book with Daniel Knight called Anthrop The Anthropology of the Future. Um, and that takes in some of the things we've just been discussing, but also how in you know, the, these ways of engaging with the future are culturally and historically specific. And so other cultures, you know, whether it's reading tea leaves or goat entrails or whatever the practice is, it's the purpose is to try and help us understand where we are in this apparent temporality. And I don't want to get into the debate about whether time does or does not exist, whether all things exist in the same moment, etc. Um, but in this apparent temporality, we we think about um, the future using or, or try to come to terms with what's happening to us now in light of how things might be with very different um, frameworks and very different practices. Um, so that's, you know, the, the Imagined Futures panel, um, that's where I've got, again, with I'm very lucky to be able to, to bring um, together science fiction writers and people from other academic disciplines as well as anthropology. And although I have yet to confirm the final lineup, um, I'm delighted that I will be joined by Professor Max Saunders from the University of Birmingham, who's um, a professor of English literature, but he wrote an extraordinary book called Imagined Futures. So I borrowed the title of the round table from his book, um, which was about the Cambridge academic C.K. Ogden, who in the 1920s and 30s commissioned the most extraordinary series of, of monographs, essentially, about the future, um, and had some of the greatest minds of that time. Um, Bertrand Russell, Vera Britton, um, Sylvia Pankhurst, uh, J.B.S. Haldane, you know, it's a it really extraordinary list of people, and asked them specifically to write about what a particular area of interest would look like in the future. So you've got the future of warfare, you've got the future of communication, you've got the future of sex, you've got the future of marriage. All kinds of um, subjects were, were tackled in this way. Um, and it was really the birth of, I guess, this sort of idea that you could, you could think about the future in such a systematic way. Um, but it was all based on imagination. It had to be because nobody could know for sure. You know, that we, we deal with... Um, there's a, um, a research scientist, and I regret that I can't recall his name at the moment, who worked on some of the early futurology, uh, as it was called, um, who said we have to deal with this, this endless problem that all facts are to do with the past. Everything that we know is in the past. We can only imagine the future. Um, and that's why imagination is so critical to all the, the efforts that we're making is that sorry? Is that making sense? I'm probably not really answering your question. Yeah, no, sure. And I think it also though points out uh, another aspect. Uh, you know, being that the conference is very interdisciplinary, uh, we also really need to be working together. And so, you know, historically, also anthropology. You're talking about, you know, what is what does anthropology look like in the future? Well, anthropology in the past was also often a lone endeavor, um, and that also needs to change. And so, this conference actually helps, in a way, shine a light on that in a in a, in a very positive way that. Uh, we really do need those other perspectives when talking about the future. And we're, as a discipline, not so accustomed, you know, broadly speaking, I'm saying. Of course, there's some people who are deeply entrenched in this particular space, but as a broad discipline, that is still not the norm. And so 
Out of curiosity, do you have a sense if um, will the audience who you know is this going to be a bit of like kind of everybody who's already in the space talking to each other, or is there any effort to pull in a broader anthropological community to help them discover something they might not be aware of? Um, there's always a risk that you know it, it's a bit self-replicating that the people who are into this stuff will be the people who are into it. Um, but the hope is that um, the message will spread and that the networks of the people involved, you know, they will let other people know. Uh, the fact that we are bringing in science fiction writers, we partnered with the British Science Fiction Association for the conference, as well as the European Association of Anthropologists Future Anthropologies Network. So it is um, setting out to try and influence and connect with wider groups um, as part of the conference, we have an exhibition of Indigenous film uh, engagement with speculative futures, and that will be fascinating. And I'm sure we'll also open up the conference to to other other networks, other disciplines, um, people who might otherwise not encounter um, the sort of academic anthropology that's still actually at the core of the conference. Um, but yeah, we, we recognise that it is a problem. And as we were saying a little earlier, um, some of the grand institutions in academia are not necessarily the best at, at um, raising raising the heads above the parapet and getting their message out to the wider world. But I think this will, and I think we've got some pretty high-profile names, certainly people like Sarah Pink, who is extremely well-known uh, and crosses you know, the boundaries between anthropology and design in particular, um, as well as Gillian Tett, who's mostly known um, as a, a journalist, financial journalist, a contributing editor to, to the Financial Times, but of course trained as an anthropologist and recently published a book on um, the superpower that anthropologists have, which is anthrovision. Um, and her contribution to the conference is framed around the other AI, anthropological intelligence, and why perhaps a, you know a, a upgrading our anthropological intelligence will help us deal with the impacts of artificial intelligence. So, and those are definitely some great names to have involved and should certainly raise the awareness. I'd be curious, sort of just somewhat staying on this topic. So you're also on the policy and practice committee for the Royal Anthropological Institute, which again is uh, somewhat interesting, not being academically speaking from the, the anthropology background. And so would you mind just for anybody who's listening, again, who might not be aware of what the committee does, maybe just brief overview on that. And then even you know, what is it that you're trying to bring to that as a non-anthropologist? Yeah. Um, well, it, it came about just towards the end of 2018 when I had been to that conference in Lisbon and I was um, going to various events at the Royal Anthropological Institute in the good old days when face-to-face -face events were still a thing. Um, and I was there when this committee was launched. And um, the idea originally was that there would be a number of themes and, and there'd be a coordinator for each theme. Um, and I was there really as an observer. Um, but um, it was suggested that artificial intelligence and other emerging technologies would be uh, a, an, an important theme for anthropologists to look at. But nobody volunteered to coordinate that one. I mean, they had climate change, somebody coordinate, uh, volunteered. They had, um, you know, migration and human population movement. Somebody volunteered, 
But when it came to AI, nobody put their hand up. And so at the end, I went up to um, Emma Crew, Professor Emma Crew from SOAS, who was chairing the committee in its first incarnation. And I said, look, if you haven't got anybody else to do it, I'll do it. I'm not an anthropologist. She said, great, you're in. <laughs> you know, so th- my initial role was really just to try and keep that space going. Um, and I made contact with a number of people um, with a view to sort of getting academic anthropologists involved. Um, things moved fairly quickly. I did, as I said, I hosted a webinar, uh, which was very much looking at um, the, these sort of futures oriented issues. Um, but it became apparent that the, the themes weren't the right way to structure the committee. Um, there were some fantastic events. The committee did some really interesting work, particularly around, for example, the pandemic and the response to the pandemic in the UK. Um, and it became apparent that it needed to, to, to change its structure. The intention really was initially to help policymakers understand how anthropology can help in essentially policy design. Um, and by the beginning of this year, it had become clear that it needed to be done slightly differently. So the committee is now undergoing a restructure. I will not be part of the new iteration, um, which is fine. It's, you know, it was getting it set up was the main thing. Um, and the uh, attention to technology and the AI and so on is clearly going to be cross-cutting. It affects everything. It's going to be in every part of whatever else the, the committee does. And if there is anything I can do to help, I will certainly continue to do so. Um, but it's, yeah, that's, that's, that's the main thing. It's, it's really reaching out to policymakers and saying, look, you know, we have ideas, we have research, we have methodologies that can be extremely valuable in making better policy in whatever area. Um, and actually one of the areas that, that may emerge from this conference is, is the law. How does the law handle artificial intelligence? How do lawmakers understand algorithms? Um, and, you know, we've got uh, a roundtable specifically on the way that algorithms are encoded with the biases of their developers. Um, and a wonderful professor, Kathleen Richardson, um, who um, wrote a book about um, the anthropology of AI from the perspective of an ethnographic study of coders and 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 technologists involved in designing AI. Um, and she will be um, encouraging people to think about the consequences of, we, we, we call them for shorthand, misogynistic algorithms. Um, but, you know, it's just this idea that bias is, is encoded into the very um, fuel that drives AI. Um, so that, you know, it is uh, an uh, urgent policy issue in, in many ways. Um, and it would be great if we could get some more attention. We, I'm, we're currently hoping to add another round table. So at the moment, we've got many panels covering a wide range of areas. I'm doing the round table on Imagine Futures. Um, Kathleen is kindly convening the round table on, on algorithms, but we're hoping to add another one on AI and the law um, and bring some legal people into the conversation as well. Very nice. And so, you know, a few themes that jump out from all of this that we've talked about so far is, 
you know, trying to raise awareness for really sort of the threats and opportunities that exist with some of the technology going into the future, some of the the methods for approaching the future, as well as like raising awareness for anthropology itself and and its potential, you know, as a potential contributor to to this work going forward. And so, with that all in mind, and given the fact that we acknowledge that some of the historic institutions don't always aren't always able to get the message outside of the the inside group. Given your background in media and your knowledge in that space, what do you think we should all be doing that goes beyond conferences and you know, journal articles? You know, what do you see that is effective that everybody listening should think about? I, I think it, it comes back to the point I made earlier about human agency. Um, and what I think, I guess, uh, my view, I, I can't say this is officially the Royal Anthropological Institute's view, but my view is that this conference will help to put the future back into human hands. Um, and I think that's what we can all do on a daily basis is say, first of all, there is no single future. There are multiple possible futures. And it kind of comes down to despite all the fanciful high flying and and exciting thrills of spaceships and and robots and so on it comes back to simple questions of governance who makes the decisions how are they accountable for those decisions and how can we change things um so i think as we keep asking keep plugging away at those questions and challenging this notion that somehow the future is already here and it's a new type of car or it's a new type of fizzy drink, or it's, you know, um, the the occupation of parts of Ukraine by Russia. I mean, you know, we don't have to accept any of those things. We can change them. But in order to do so, we have to be far more proactive in asserting our agency than I think we have been inclined to be in recent years, where either... It's for, you know, certainly in the industrialized economies of the West, it's been too easy living and we haven't had much incentive. Or perhaps since the pandemic, it's been despair. And the idea that, well, you know, if a invisible virus can shut down the economy and kill many, many people, then, you know, what well, there's nothing we can do about it. Those things are amenable to human agency. And that, to me, is the most important lesson of all of this. Great. Well, I think we'll leave it there. I think that sums it up nicely. And um, so, Ezri, thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks all for listening. For more information on the Anthropology, AI, and the Future of Human Society virtual conference, visit the Royal Anthropological Institute's website. I'm Matt Arts, and I hope to see you virtually at the conference.